God is not a God of disorder or confusion, but is the God of peace. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars rise in your hearts. You are tuning into the Tribe of Christians podcast with host The Chief Sinner, bringing you a peace of mind, clarity, insight, and perspective to the world you live in by the word of God, featuring the latest updates on end time prophecy news. Don't Don't forget forget to subscribe to the the Tribe of Christians broadcast, either either on Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Facebook, or YouTube at tribeofchristians.com. Without further ado, here is your host and teacher, the Chief Sinner. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Tribe of Christians podcast. I am your host, the Chief Sinner. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In this podcast episode, I'm going to take you through the way of the cross and reveal the true marks and calling of a disciple of Christ. The way of the cross isn't convenient. The way of Christ isn't convenient. And the way of love isn't convenient. There isn't anything convenient about following Jesus. And although the way of the cross is full of joy, in this world, it oftentimes comes through pain, sacrifice, hardships, and difficulties. The way of the cross takes work, patience, diligence, selflessness, dedication, sacrifice, and everything else that 1 Corinthians 13 describes about the very attributes and characteristics of love, that the very image of Christ might be reflected through our lives. Romans 8.29, which tells us, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The New Testament Greek word for conform is sumorphous, which means to morph, form, and shape in outward expression. It's the same exact term in which we use to describe the transformation process of the caterpillar into a butterfly. And the Greek word for foreknew comes from the Greek word genosko, which means to realize, recognize, and to perceive. And you'll oftentimes, you'll hear the Calvinistic argument for predestination, which is that not all have the opportunity for salvation, but rather that God has already picked those who would become saved by Christ. But the Greek word genosko, which translates to the word foreknew, isn't a prophetic pretense, but rather it implies the realization to recognize through appearance. So, when God foreknew those in Christ, he is referencing Genesis 1.26, the very beginning, which he says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, 
being in the likeness and the image of Jesus. In other words, you can say it like this, that when God recognizes the inward presence of Jesus in a person's life, that person then becomes conformed through the sanctification process of the Holy Spirit to the outward appearances and attributes of Christ by the way that we act and speak. God is looking for the presence of his son Jesus in those whom he has created and then molds us into the image of his son Jesus, which is love. The process has to first take place in the mind and in the heart. With the heart, we choose to follow love, which is the way of the cross. With the mind, we choose to conform our thoughts, habits, patterns, and behaviors to follow the heart of Christ through the way of the cross. Being conformed to the image of Christ isn't an instant thing. Although the presence of Christ is instant, the change of thoughts, the change of habits, the change of desires, the change of direction occurs through temperance and molding. It comes through the working relationship between Jesus and a person through time, just as metamorphosis occurs for a caterpillar. The physical biological and chemical makeup of the human body isn't wired for the image of Christ, as the Word tells us that our very flesh is born sinful from the moment that we are born. Everything in our makeup is designed for self-preservation. As a baby, we learn to cry when we're hungry. To cry when we need our diapers changed. To cry when we aren't feeling good. And the purpose of the cry is to draw attention to ourselves and that our mother or father can attend to our needs. Even our very physical makeups of our bodies are even designed for self-preservation. Designed to attract a suitable mate for conception and childbearing. Men are attracted to hips, curves, breasts, and the elegance of a woman that displays the suitability for childbearing where women are attracted to the strength attributes of a man, including his personality and character traits that demonstrate leadership and direction, suitable mate for providing for and protecting the family. Our physiological and brain makeup are chemically wired for self-preservation too, which is why we have illnesses like bipolar and PTSD. The brain records every emotion and chemical response in every situation, whether it be romance or it be an emergency life-threatening situation, all the way down to specific smells, colors, time, temperature, specific noises, and then the brain replays them back over and over and over in every situation. It's a survival mechanism that the brain uses for self-preservation, to survive and thrive. It's also the reason why our bodies put off pheromones, odors, and sense. It's why we're attracted to certain smells that give off certain chemical reactions in the brain, which translates the codes into signals of either safe or danger, attraction, appeal, or fear and caution. It's the reason why you can show up to work and nearly two-thirds of all of your coworkers are wearing the similar or same color. It's the reason why you will sometimes accidentally dress in the same color as your spouse or siblings. It's a form of camouflage and survival mechanism that our brains will subconsciously choose to ensure that we will fit in, that we're going to blend in with other people and not stand out. Our entire bodily system is designed for survival. 
It takes 21 days to form a habit. Habits are cognitive behavior functions that the brain uses to memorize things that we've done to help us to keep doing them. If you've ever attended a counseling session or have to go through a rehab program, doctors will often use the cognitive behavior therapy treatment plan to treat disorders and illnesses that affect the brain and psychology. Medical studies have shown that brain cells can change and adapt, that they can grow and heal by simply changing our thought patterns, responses, and our reactions to situations. Every thought produces a chemical response, and every reaction produces a chemical response. Those chemicals are then recorded in our subconscious, which is also where and why addictions also occur. In martial arts and law enforcement academies, they teach about the fight or flight syndrome as well as the various nerves in our body as a method of self-defense. In the fight or flight syndrome, the body's nervous system releases adrenaline and endorphins in a life-threatening situation and response for survival that will either provoke feelings of fear or feelings of anger in order to run or fight off a dangerous threat. In the fight or flight syndrome, we lose 70% of our vision, coining the term tunnel vision, and all of our blood rushes away from our limbs into our core to protect our vital organs, which is why in an emergency situation, most people have reported the feelings of feeling numb or feeling nothing at all. And even in some situations, we will deliberately lie to other people as a survival mechanism out of fear of consequence, out of the fear of judgment, and out of the fear of isolation and rejection. It's in our human DNA to actually lie in order to save ourselves from being isolated away from society. Everything about the human body is in direct opposition of the cross. It's the exact opposite of selflessness and sacrifice. We breathe to live. We eat to live. We drink to live. We have sex to live. We communicate to live. We act and talk to live. Everything about the way that we live and how we live is for self-perseverance and for survival. And not to completely demonize the human body, but it's a scientific and medical fact. However, the cross brings the human nature into light and truth about what and how we really are, how we really operate, and how we are as individuals. The cross holds us accountable for our words that we speak. It brings into judgment our thoughts and actions and how we interact with other people. The cross brings out the truth about us. This is why the word tells us that this scripture is both living and breathing, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing the heart and soul and exposing every Everything to light. Way of the cross isn't a convenient or easy kind of thing. It's not a one day of the week kind of thing. It's not just a Sunday kind of thing. The cross bears responsibility. The cross bears purpose. The cross bears intention. The cross bears consequence. And as the saying goes from the Apostle Paul, for you are not your own, you were bought for by a price. And when we hear the truth, through the cross, we will either respond through repentance and worship, or we're going to respond in defense and selfishness. One choice leads to faith in life, or the other response leads to doubt, sin, and death. 
And I wonder if this generation today truly understands what it means to follow Christ, to follow his way, what it truly means to deny ourselves, to pick up the cross and follow him. And I wonder if pastors today understand the true cost of following Jesus. And when someone slanders us, when someone points out our flaws and sin, when someone rejects us, and when someone treats us harshly or with hurtful criticism, do we respond in love through our trust in Jesus, or do we respond? Respond through the self-preservation kind of way and selfishness. I think too often times we think of Jesus as the way to heaven, but we never consider Jesus as the way and standard of living. There's a lot more to the story than just reconciliation and repentance. There's a lot more to it than just the altar call. And it's like we all raised our hands or walked down to the altar call to say yes to Jesus, but yet we're saying no to everything else about Christ and the body of Christ. So what does it mean to truly go the way of the cross? How do we truly deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus? If you would turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be reading Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we read about the calling of Isaiah when Isaiah began his ministry as a prophet and messenger of God to Israel. And interestingly, Isaiah's name in Hebrew actually means, The Lord is my Savior. And although Israel and the Jews do not recognize Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they credit Isaiah as one of the greatest prophets that they've ever had and still read from his text to this day. And although Jesus hadn't been revealed yet to Israel or the world, you'll discover that Isaiah has a vision and revelation about Jesus. And one of the very first things, one of the first themes that flow from the life of Isaiah and his immediate ability to recognize the truth, especially the truth of himself. And how incredible it is that Isaiah's first response in the midst of God, in the presence of God, and the revelation of Christ, the revelation to the truth, is to immediately humble himself. When a person is shown the great revelation of the Lord, the truth is immediately made known to us, as Jesus not only said that he is the way, but also that he is the truth. And that truth will either set a person free or enslave a person who denies it. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, the text reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, their doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The one of the seraphim flew to me with the live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. 
He said, go and tell the people this, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the tamarind and oath leaves stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. In verse 8, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here I am, send me. And I wonder if Isaiah truthfully knew what he was signing up for when he is filled with joy to volunteer himself to go as the Lord's servant and messenger. And we think of Isaiah when we see a need that is revealed to us and we want to respond to fulfill that need. When we think of the altar call, when we think of ministry and serving at the pulpit, or perhaps we think of Isaiah when we wish to go and serve in missions around the world, sharing the good news of Jesus. Here I am, Lord, send me. Now, can you imagine standing in the presence of God and seeing this? I honestly can't. I don't know what I would do with myself. I couldn't stand because I'm unworthy to stand in the presence of God, yet I couldn't bow because God is worthy of all of my attention. But how incredible is it that although we aren't literally in the highest heaven's throne room with the Father, but yet the atmosphere of his throne is still among us through the Holy Spirit and Jesus as we praise and worship him. It's an exciting moment to hear the voice of the Lord, and even more so to hear him ask, Whom shall I send? How many of us would love that opportunity to be given to us? And the opportunities are there. They're constantly around us, although not through the voice of God audibly, but through his voice, through his creation and his Holy Spirit. And how even more thrilling for those of us who hear it and we get to go. And it's a noble request. It's a noble response. When the Lord tells us that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And when anyone expresses a response, here I am, Lord, send me. That's truly a joyful and great moment. It really is. The word tells us that all of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents in the name of Jesus, but even greater when the redemptive soul chooses to go and to serve. But sometimes we get so overwhelmed with the joy of serving the Lord and the great joy of answering the great call of who will we send that perhaps we never really stop to think about the entire question the Lord is asking here. Because the mission is to go. Jesus said it in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But do you really know what the full mission truthfully is? What is really the full question here when the Lord is asking, Whom will go? Whom shall we send? And if we truthfully knew the full question, if we truthfully knew the full mission, would there be anybody left eagerly to go? And I wonder if the 11 of the 12 disciples at the first moment Jesus called them knew that they would be killed, murdered, betrayed, hanged, beheaded, crucified, tortured, if they would still go. 
But we know that despite the denial of Peter and despite the betrayal of Judas, none of them changed their minds about following Christ all the way to the very death. And that's the full question, the full condition of answering the call to become a disciple of Jesus, which is that we are to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses, and to follow after Christ. That means leaving behind who we were, not just the sinful aspects of who we were, but the entirety of everything and how we chose to live life that served ourselves as that person. In order to become the image of Jesus, the image of Christ, the image of God, we have to forget the image of ourselves. We have to be willing to leave it all behind, to let it all go and never look back without a hesitation or doubt in our minds. Just as Abraham left everything else behind, just as the disciples sold all of their possessions and belongings to give it to the poor, just as Moses left the life of Egypt behind him to embrace his calling to serve and lead the first generation of Israelites, we too must be willing to let everything go without any attachments. One day, my wife and I, we took a bus through Brooklyn and took the scenic route just to see the view. And I kid you not, as we rode through, you could see thousands of these little storefront churches literally on every corner block like you would see 7-Elevens back in the day. And some, on some blocks, I counted up to three to four storefront churches all on the same block radius. And I'm not knocking the storefront churches because my wife and I, we currently attend a storefront back alley church right now, but it's an indicator that thousands, despite the thousands of pastors and churches that have answered the call to follow Christ, but yet if we are truly answering the call to follow Christ, how come there's so much discord and division among churches and none of them have any affiliation with each other? There's also quite a few of these really big popular mega churches out here in New York City too, filled with thousands of people and members that attend services. We had a Chris Tomlin concert here not that long ago, and Chris Tomlin actually brought out on stage all the various worship leaders from these different mega churches like Hillsong or the Christian Cultural Center and the Brooklyn Tabernacle to represent New York City. And it was kind of a cool thing to see. But thing about it is if you combine all of these mega churches together, the thousands of Christians that attend these churches. And let's say you combine all of the storefront churches together too. You've got at least a million or a couple or a few million Christians out there, right? At least. But yet, New York City is one of the most anti-conservative, anti-biblical cities out of the entire world with mainstream liberal ideologies that go completely against the teachings of Christ. And not to knock mega churches either, because I was saved at 12 years old in one of the largest churches in Texas, uh, Houston's First Baptist Church. But when you're seeing things like this, you have to stop and ask, are we really getting it here? Do we really understand what Jesus meant when he said to deny ourselves, to pick up the cross, to pick up our crosses and follow him? And I would think if there are this many pastors, this many churches, this many Christians, then truthfully answering the call to send me, Lord, here I am, and right here out of New York City or even across the world, then why do we have so many who are homeless? Why do we have so many people without jobs? Why do we have so many drug problems? And why are we saturated with money and debt? And why is the divorce rate 50 to 60%? 
Why are we still electing evil leaders as mayors and governors who proudly support things like gay marriage and abortion and lawlessness? Why are we still electing officials who deliberately applaud civil disobedience and hateful speech? If this nation is the world's leading evangelical free world nation, then why are these things still being supported and why are they still happening? Now, the Lord's response to Isaiah in verse 9 saying, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And how relevant and still present is this as God's response today? We're constantly seeking, but we're seeking the wrong things. We're constantly being intentional, but being intentional in the wrong direction. Have our hearts become dull and our eyes shut to faith? We are praying for repentance. We're praying for revival. And we're asking ourselves, where have all of the miracles and the wonders gone? Like what happened with the first early church? How come demons aren't fleeing when we say the name of Jesus? How come we aren't being healed when we ask in the name of Christ? And how come the floodgates aren't opening from our offerings and our tithes? And Isaiah wasn't the man whom God sent. He wasn't it. He wasn't the answer. In a lot of us, we miss over that very crucial part. We oftentimes forget that we aren't the answer either, that we aren't it. We're not the answered prayer. We aren't the one whom God has sent. The purpose of Christianity isn't the Christian, but rather it is the Christ. When we think of Isaiah, we think of Isaiah the prophet with all of his visions and prophecies. But truthfully, nothing ever originated from Isaiah. It all came from Christ, from the Lord, as Isaiah in his own words, the king, just as his name means, the Lord is my savior. And a lot of times, like Isaiah, we hear the same voice saying, whom shall I send? And it's in our worship songs, right? And we think we're that answer, send me. Lord, I will go. And the Lord did send Isaiah, and he sent all of his apostles and his disciples all over the world with the Great Commission. And at times we get to go to and be his witnesses. But the question, whom shall I send? The entire question, who will go to the cross? Who is worthy enough to send to the cross? And Jesus was sent he is it. He is the answer. He is the way. He's the truth. He is the one that's worthy enough for the mission, willing enough to die to himself, that everyone who might believe in him would have eternal life through him. And the very words that the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the very message at the calling of Isaiah, the the purpose of Isaiah's ministry was fulfilled right here in Luke chapter 19, verses 44. Luke chapter 19, 44, Jesus says to the city of Jerusalem, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
And we saw the destruction of the second temple. We saw Israel scattered out of their homeland for over 2,000 years. They faced World War I and World War II because they denied the cross and rejected Jesus. It wasn't until 1948 where Israel was regathered from all of the ends of the earth. And in 1967, Jerusalem was recaptured by Israel, despite the fact that they still don't know Jesus. But the day is coming where they will finally get the revelation of who he is. And Revelation chapter 5 is also another fulfillment of God's word to Isaiah concerning Jesus. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and a seal with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the score or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one with a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked. I took and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders in a loud voice saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The question, who will we send? Who will go to the cross. And there in heaven, they wept because no one was worthy until Jesus was sent, until Jesus fulfilled his mission on the cross. The King, the Lord, became the Lamb that was slain upon the cross that we may be redeemed by him and called his priests and servants through the way of the cross. Now let's talk about the cross. We're all familiar with it what it looks like. It's the sign of religion and righteousness. It's the symbol that we wear on necklaces that accent our beauty and physical attributes. And we recognize the cross from Easter services every year or at the pinnacles of church rooftops and in paintings. And we remember it from vampire movies and exorcisms. The cross is a famous logo that's used in everything on every corner in every store. It's like McDonald's or 7-Eleven. It's used iconically everywhere by nearly everyone. We're all familiar with the cross. But who willingly goes to the cross? An instrument of a brutal, torturous, and painful death sentenced in the most humiliating way. If someone gave you an invitation to death, literally said, if you come right over this way, you will be killed on the most in the most horrendous way, would you go? No, most of us value our life. 
And at times, even the Apostle Paul had to go the other way to avoid death in order to fulfill spreading the gospel message. No one willingly goes to the cross except, of course, for Jesus, and Jesus does. The Romans invented the cross, but it was Jesus who made the cross famous and known throughout the rest of entire history of the world. We have never forgotten the cross since. We remember Jesus as he was pierced through his hands and feet with nails driven like a stake into the ground. We remember Jesus as he died in undeserving criminal's death. We remember Jesus who said, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they have done. We remember him in communion. We remember him on Resurrection Easter. We remember him on Sunday in church. But how we forgot him how we forget him when we're slandered against, how we forget him when we are rejected, how we forget Jesus when we are mocked and made fun of, when we are passed up for on that job or that promotion, how we forget Jesus when we are in the middle of a divorce fighting for child custody, how we forget him when life is good, and how we forget him when all is well or when we want to be the ones in the spotlight. But we'll remember Jesus in trouble. We'll remember him when everything has fallen apart. We'll remember him when in sickness or when we're afraid. The way of the cross never ceases being the cross. The cross never lost its value. It never lost its meaning. The cross every single day, every moment of our lives is always saving. It's always hoping. It's always trusting. It's always persevering. It's always forgiving, and it never fails. The way of the cross never stops being the way, even when we are going in a different direction or when we have chosen to be disobedient, unfaithful, or have turned to sin Jesus was, he is, and will always be. The way of the cross is consistent. It always is the same. It never changes with the times. It doesn't change with the social trends. There is always a way to choose Jesus over yourself, and there's always a way in every single situation, no matter what it is, to see and remember Jesus, rather well or not. Jesus' way of doing things was by the way of the cross. He died to himself that we might live. You cannot truly live if you don't truly die. And Jesus wasn't resurrected until he died. And the Spirit wasn't given until after the resurrection. You can't have Pentecost without the cross. You can't be revived until your first are dead. And we're preaching in the name of the cross, but yet we aren't going the way of the cross. And we are going the way of our beliefs, the way of our ministry and church visions. We spend hours and time tirelessly promoting our ministries and churches just trying to get people in and through the doors. We spend crazy amounts of money to advertise so people know who we are and where we are. We spend countless efforts writing promotional newsletters and updates to serve as reminders to people so that they remember us and not forget. But how many of those hours could we have spent having a meal with somebody, sharing a day with another person, lifting up somebody at the hospital, visiting a long lost friend or forgotten family member that's sitting in a nursing home, or even spend time just picking up the phone and calling someone to genuinely see how they are doing without a need or expectation. And how much much of that money could we have spent towards bailing folks out of jail, helping the homeless get an ID card or a social security card, or helping a family member or a person with job training skills? The way of the cross 
is to die to oneself. And we get fooled into thinking that it's okay to put our ministry visions first because it's our ministry, but end up completely missing the entire revelation and blessing of truly serving those around us the way of the cross. In that second part of Matthew 16, 25-26, it reads, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our weakness is that we are sinners and are imperfect, but our imperfections and our sin ought to point to the direction of God's love and the way and how we handle sin in our life and in the lives around us. The way of the cross is how we choose to respond to affliction, how we choose to respond to trouble, to sin, to rejection, how we choose to respond to the things and the ways of the world. The way of the cross is our response to everything. When God says, whom shall I send? Send us, Lord, to the situations that need the cross. Let us be a shining light in every single situation. Send us to the ones who will reject us so that they will know what true love is. Send us to the ones who will deny us so that they will know you, who you truly are. Send us to the liars, to the adulterers, to the haters, to the criminals and trespassers, because in every single sinful situation where darkness is present, there is the very opportunity to deny ourselves to pick up our crosses, and to follow Jesus, to be a light shining in a dark place. And Jesus said that no one takes a lamp and hides it under a bed, but rather puts it on display for all to see. What kind of situations has God been putting you in? What kind of people have crossed your path? What type of opportunities are there in your life? Does it seem like hopelessness? Every negative situation is a possibility. Every rejection is about opportunity. As I always say in every episode, it is always about perspective. Perspective will change the way you see situations, the way you see trials and tribulations. Perspectives will change your focus and shift your purpose. Is your purpose your job? Is your purpose your career path or dreams to build that house, to marry the right person? Or is your purpose to shine the light of Jesus? Are you living to promote Christ and others? Or are you living to promote yourself and to draw people to yourself? Do you point out the faults in others easily with harsh criticism? Or do you quickly defend your actions and decisions to protect your reputation or honor? Do you spend most of your time with good deeds to manipulate the perception and perspective that others have of you so that it is good? What is the motivation of your heart? Do you live life in a way that works to draw people toward yourself? Or do you live your life to draw people towards God and God's love? The purpose of Christianity, again, is not the Christian, but rather is the Christ. Paul said that to die is to gain, 
The words spoken by Jesus to deny oneself. It's to literally reject anything that benefits yourself. There is nothing beneficial about the cross, about the death, about selflessness, except that it glorifies Jesus. It glorifies the Father. In the way of the cross, it's not pretty or honoring. It's full of pain and brokenness. But that's why Jesus said that his grace is perfected in our weakness. It's about humility and relying solely upon the power of Christ. When he also said that his grace is sufficient enough, he is asking us, what other greater reward could there ever possibly be that is more satisfying than Jesus? Because there isn't. There isn't a single thing more gratifying than Christ himself because God is love. He is unconditional love. And outside of love, there is no other purpose or reason to even exist. 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak the language of angels and obtain all the gifts but do not have love, I am nothing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him all things were made by him and for him god is love the very purpose of love is god the cross isn't about us it's about god it's about jesus it's about love so if we aren't going to the cross if we're not picking up our crosses if we're not abiding in love and we're not loving others life without the cross is a life without purpose that is why it says it's impossible to please god without faith Faith is action, and action is obedience, and obedience is the cross. And the way of the cross is the way Jesus chose to go. If he is the way, and since he is the way, there is no other way than the cross. He didn't lead by the throne. He didn't lead by a scepter or a crown. He didn't lead by conquest. He didn't lead by power or might. He led by laying his life down for others. He led by the cross. He led by humility. He led by serving. He served by the cross. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and for your very word, which is living and breathing. We thank you for giving us the desire to hear you, for giving us faith inspired by listening to you. And we pray that you may inspire in us to the obedience to the cross, to follow in your very footsteps, to deny ourselves rather in pain or suffering, to deny ourselves rather in hardship or heartache. Oh Lord, teach us not to avenge ourselves, but to trust in you and to love and forgive. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can find more great teachings just like this one on our website at tribeofchristians.com. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and share this message. You can also email us with any comments, questions, prayers, or concerns on our website or directly on our Facebook page. This concludes this podcast episode, and may God continue to bless you and be with you.